to our exposition through the Gospel of Mark. And we are in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 41. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 41. We are nearing the end of this Gospel, and Lord willing, we will be done in just a couple weeks. So today we pick up Mark's account as Jesus is on the cross And I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Mark, in chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. May God bless the reading, <coughs> excuse me, of his word. Please be seated. For most people, their final hours of life on this earth are, are relatively mundane. Life slowly evaporates on the bed of a hospital or or in a home. The heart no longer beats in allegro or even moderato but it drags along in, in Largo until its life tomb finally comes to an end. And I've thought, I've even dreamed of dying like this. You know, I've thought that it would be ideal to die in the arms of my wife or, or with my family by my side, reading scripture passages to me, singing familiar hymns to me, sharing memories as, as my spirit passes from this life to the next. It would be a grace from God to die in in such a a peaceful way. Certainly, some people perish in a a more sudden way. Fatal crash, a, a gunshot wound, an unexpected tragedy. But never has anyone died like Jesus. The final hours of Jesus' life on earth were filled with monumental events. It is no exaggeration to say that Jesus' death was the most significant 
of moment in the history of this world. What happened leading up to and immediately after his death was astounding because Jesus' death was the turning point for mankind. It paved a way for all of us who have been separated from God due to sin to be reconciled to him. Jesus' death was an intoning death. He paid the penalty that we deserved for our sins against a holy God. He, he freed us from our, our bondage to sin. And he satisfied the terrible yet just wrath of God. And Jesus did what none of us could do. And that's why he came to earth. We, we needed a, a perfect substitute to live the life that we had been created to live in accordance with God's will. We needed someone who was without fault, who could be the sacrificial offering for our sins. Without the work of Jesus on the cross, we could never be saved. There was no other way in the plan of God. From eternity, he chose to redeem us and to redeem this world through the the means of an atoning sacrifice. God's holy and, and just anger over sin in this world would not be appeased in any other way, and Jesus the Son of God had been appointed to carry out that plan. Talk of wrath, talk of holy anger is certainly not in vogue today. To posit that someone could be angry at our personal choices and, and actually be justified in that anger is really a, an abhorrence to the ears of many. We balk at the notion of God as some kind of rage monster who gets a kick out of punishing his poor creatures. We're we're much more inclined to think of God as a divine Alexa or a divine Siri at our beck and call, ready to make our life easier. We are inclined to let the idea of the love of God overwhelm what the Bible teaches about his justice and his holiness. And when that happens... We, we begin to think that, that God must save us if he is truly loving. He owes it to us. We, we, we craft a God in our minds who is, who is ready to help us, but to whom we owe nothing. We make him a God who does not need to be satisfied and who does not actually require the sacrifice of death. So many who call themselves Christians are tempted to think of the cross as really just a demonstration and an example of God's willingness to love us instead of the terrible act of punishment that it actually was. But as Mark narrates the end of Jesus' life, there is no getting around the fact that Jesus suffered great punishment from God for us on the cross. Mark plainly shows us what Jesus endured and accomplished in the final hours of his life. There, there were many things that happened at the cross, but, but Mark in his gospel highlights four key happenings from Jesus' final hours that should make us appreciate our, our Lord and Savior and all that he provides for us through his death. These four vignettes should make us thankful and prayerful and full of trust in the Son of God who died for us. First, I want us to consider this morning the moment when Christ was forsaken. The first moment or episode that Mark highlights for us is 
the forsaken Christ. The forsaken Christ. We learn in verse 33 that it was the sixth hour on Good Friday, measuring from 6 a.m., the beginning of the day. That means it was noon. Since it was Passover, it was the middle of a spring day. From verse 25, we know that Jesus had already been on the cross for three hours. He had been mocked and derided by others during that time. But at noon, something changed. At the time of day, when the sun is usually brightest, we learn in verse 33 that there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, the whole land here could mean the whole earth, but probably just refers to the land of Judea. That area was blanketed with darkness for three hours, and we know that this wasn't a solar eclipse because it was Passover. It was full moon during that time, and an eclipse would have been impossible. But maybe the darkness was the result of a dust storm or some kind of extremely heavy cloud cover. Yet none of the gospel writers tell us exactly. What we are really led to conclude is that this darkness was supernatural. It was an act of God indicating his judgment was present. For in the prophets, God spoke of a day in which his judgment would be accompanied by, by darkness. Listen to Zephaniah 1.15. It says, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Amos 8.9 also says, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Darkness was a sign of God's judgment. Think back also to the, the time when Israel was in slavery in, in Egypt. What was the ninth plague? It was a plague of darkness. And God had brought that plague upon Egypt after Pharaoh had repeatedly hardened his heart. It was a plague of judgment. And if you remember, that darkness was the, the precursor to God's final act of judgment upon Egypt as he struck down the firstborn of every family in the tenth plague. So the darkness at the cross was an indication that God's judgment was here. It was, it was actually an ominous announcement that a firstborn was going to die. But it, but it wasn't just any firstborn. It was God's own son who would die as the lamb for our sins. Now just try to imagine what it would have been to, to be outside on that hill in the middle of the day in utter darkness for three hours. Uh, to the onlookers, it must have felt eerie unsettling to be there. They couldn't see the, the agony on the faces of those being crucified. They could only listen to their occasional moans as they were dying. But to Jesus, the darkness was an entirely different affair. In that darkness, he must have felt the presence of God like never before. But what he felt was God's presence to judge. He felt the full fury and, and vengeance of God upon sin. He, he felt the just wrath of God's punishment. Some have said God was bringing hell upon Jesus in that darkness. Over 30 years earlier, 
Jesus was born with angels singing and, and stars shining as he entered the world. That's what we remember during the season of Advent. But at his death, there was silence and darkness because he was fulfilling his mission to take upon himself the sins of mankind. And in verse 34, after three hours of divine judgment, at the ninth hour, Jesus broke the silence. And he cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The loudness of this cry indicates that Jesus acutely felt God's judgment. He felt what it was like to be abandoned by God. Why? Why was Jesus forsaken? This is the the money question that that reveals what Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was all about. Was the cross simply a demonstration of love? No. It was that. But it was more than that. It was the moment when God's wrath upon sin was satisfied once and for all. So why was Jesus forsaken? Because he had become a curse for us. Though he knew no sin, he was, he was made sin to be sin for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was giving his life as a ransom. He was drinking the cup for us. This right here is the price of substitutionary atonement. The price is nothing less than Jesus being abandoned by God because of our sins so that he could pay the penalty for our sin and reconcile us to God through his death. But how can God abandon God? We must realize that in this moment, the unity of the Godhead the triune God, one God and three persons, that unity was not broken. The Father had not rejected the Son. Notice that in Jesus' cry, he still called God what? My God. In fact, he cried this two times to indicate his affection and connection to God despite being forsaken. And if we read on in Scripture, we learn in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, that this abandonment on the cross was temporary. Luke affirms for us there that Jesus was not abandoned by the Father in the grave. But in a true sense, the Son was separated from the Father and the Spirit at Calvary. The realness of, of Jesus being forsaken by God was possible because he was a divine man. He was God incarnate. He was truly God, but he was also truly man. And in his humanity, as the bearer of our sins, he experienced a kind of despair and separation that no living man has ever experienced or will ever experience. We may not fully understand all the mysteries involved here, but we know that Jesus felt the judgment of God in a real way. Yet he still trusted in God's plan. His cry is an echo of, of Psalm 22:1, which we sang at the beginning of our service. In, in this time of greatest trial, his mind went to Scripture. He recalled words from a psalm that predicted how he would die. Yes, he was forsaken, but the Godhead was still united and the plan of God was still on track. 
What a comforting example this is for us. Though we could never feel forsaken by God like Jesus did, there are definitely times when you might feel abandoned by him. You might feel a sense of separation. It it could be due to some difficult circumstances that God has brought about in your life, maybe even right now. Maybe it could just be due to your own sin. In those times, do not forget that you can still call out to God and call him my God. You can bring your laments to him. Contrary to, to what you might feel in the moment, God is never an absentee father. He is always there for his own. Now we see in verse 35 that some of those who were around the cross heard Jesus' cry and, and they said, behold, he is calling Elijah. The Hebrew for Elijah is Eliah. And so it seems like these bystanders misheard Jesus' Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, to be a reference to that old prophet of Israel. And this would have been a very Jewish thing to think. Because we know from 2 Kings 2.11 that Elijah was taken to heaven before he died. And Malachi 4, 5, and 6 speak of a day in which Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. And so there was an expectation among the Jews that Elijah would return to rescue the righteous. So someone, probably one of the Jewish onlookers, ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. This is, this is cheap Vinegar wine that was often drunk by slaves and and soldiers to quench their thirst. It was supposedly better at doing that than water. And John tells us in his gospel that there was a full jar of, of that wine there at the cross. It was probably there for the soldiers as they performed their execution duties. So someone took some of this wine, put it on a sponge, and put that sponge on a reed since Jesus was elevated. It was, uh, it was a vain gesture to try to prolong Jesus' life for just a little bit longer. Perhaps this was another form of mockery to extend Jesus' pitiful experience on the cross. That might be true, but could have also been an act of simple kindness. Maybe someone genuinely wanted to see if Elijah would actually come to rescue Jesus. Whatever the intention, we know that no one came. Because Elijah had already come. Earlier on in Mark's gospel, in chapter 9, verses 11 and 13, Mark told us that Elijah had come in the form of John the Baptist, who had prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus did not need to be rescued. He was the one who was doing the rescuing. But to do that, he needed to be forsaken. And again, we see how alone Jesus was when he died. And God had abandoned him. And no one was coming to save him. In the other Gospels, we learn that it was at this moment that Jesus summoned the strength to utter, it is finished. His work was done, and his last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yes, Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross, But it was so that he could say, it is finished. And in the end, return to his Father in heaven, having done his will. And thus Mark records in verse 7 that Jesus uttered a loud cry 
and breathed his last. Most crucifixion victims would slowly fade into unconsciousness and die utterly weakened by the cross. But Jesus was conscious to the end. His life wasn't taken from him. He had offered it up. He did not expire as a weak man, but he offered up his life in the final moments with strength. He ended his life with a shout. We cannot forget what Jesus willingly endured for us. He was forsaken. He was forsaken for us. And that's the first key happening from these final hours of Jesus' life that Mark points us to. The second happening is found in verse 38. First, the, the Christ forsaken. Second, the torn curtain. The forsaken Christ, and next, the torn curtain. After Jesus' death, we learn in verse 38 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, we know that the temple in Jerusalem had two main curtains. One that separated the holy place from the inner courtyard, and one beyond that which separated the most holy place from the holy place. The most holy place was the place where only the great high priest could enter. Alfred Edersheim wrote that this inner curtain was 60 feet long and 30 feet wide. Uh, It was a thick, thick veil made up of 72 squares that were joined together into this very heavy curtain, potentially needing hundreds of priests to manipulate. And so to tear one of these curtains was no simple task. These aren't the drapes that you can go out and buy at Ikea or get shipped to your home from Amazon. This is a heavy-duty barrier. And notice that the curtain was not torn from the bottom. Mark specifically mentions that it was torn from the top all the way to the bottom. It was completely split in two from potentially 60 feet high up in the air. So this was clearly another supernatural act by God. Matthew 27 verses 51 to 53 tell us that at this time there was also an earthquake and and tombs were opened and saints who had died were raised. The death of Jesus set off a, a chain reaction of astonishing events. And the fact that these unusual events occurred is supported not only by the New Testament and other Christian traditions, but it's also supported by other writers. Tacitus, the Roman historian, wrote of a time at the Jewish temple when the doors of the inner shrine were suddenly thrown open and a voice of more than mortal tone was heard to cry that the gods were departing. The Jewish Talmud records a mysterious extinction of light in the temple 40 years before its destruction in 70 AD and the supernatural opening of the temple gates. Josephus also describes these gates opening. While not certain, there is some reason to believe that these accounts may be distorted versions of the temple veil being rent and the other miraculous events on that day. It's actually not clear from Mark's record which curtain in the temple was torn. If it was the outer curtain, it would have been a more visible act and noticeable to many. However, based on the book of Hebrews, I'm more inclined to believe that it was the inner curtain that was torn. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment. 
Pastor Stephen read this passage for us in our word of assurance after the prayer of confession, but, but I want you to look at Hebrews 10, 19 with me again. The, the author, author of Hebrews gives us some important insight into why this curtain was torn. Some believe that the curtain was torn as an act of judgment upon the, the religious system of Israel. It was an indication that the temple system of sacrifices and, and priests was all coming to an end. And with the destruction of the temple a few decades later, that would indeed happen. But the author of Hebrews gives us another more compelling reason. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the what? The curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author of Hebrews is telling us that through Jesus we have access to God. There is no more barrier to him. There is no, no more curtain that can only be crossed by a high priest. Jesus has opened a new and living way to God for us through his death. He hasn't just made the outer curtain unnecessary. He's made the inner curtain unnecessary as well. Because of Jesus' death, God himself tore the curtain behind which he had dwelt so long to make himself available to all who would enter through the way opened by the great high priest himself. The tearing of the curtain was not, not simply an interior designer's nightmare. It was the advent of something new and beautiful. The Father was welcoming us into a new relationship with him, a, a restored relationship with no more barriers of sacrificial offerings and merely human mediators. Through Christ, we can approach God in a new way. Jesus' death gives us access to God. That's the second vignette that Mark presents in these verses. We've seen the, the forsaken Christ and the, the torn curtain. Now let's look at the centurion's confession in verse 39. The centurion's confession. This centurion in Mark was a, a junior officer who was over a hundred men. He had been charged to carry out the executions on this particular Friday. He had seen the scourging of Jesus. He had walked with him on the way to the cross. He had overseen Jesus being nailed and hoisted up into the air. He had witnessed the way that Jesus silently accepted the false accusations, the foolish mockery of those around him. He had seen his loving concern for his mother. He had heard of Jesus' willingness to forgive others. He had experienced the blanket of darkness upon the land. He had felt the earthquake. And at the end, he heard Jesus' loud cries at his death. This centurion, who had undoubtedly witnessed many, many crucifixions, had never seen one like this. He didn't realize he had, he had scored tickets to the most significant show of love and wonder that any man or woman has ever witnessed. The other gospel writers tell us that, that this was awe-inspiring to him. So he could not help but 
to exclaim, truly, this man was the Son of God. Nor to notice how, how orthodox his confession was. He was convicted by the truth of who Jesus was. Yes, he was a man, but he was also the incarnate Son of God. And the centurion just couldn't deny this. And, and this is where Mark Gos- Mark's gospel peaks. In the very first sentence of his gospel, Mark wrote that, that it was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, well, after 15 chapters describing Jesus' ministry and life, his gospel culminates in this unexpected but undeniable confession by a Roman soldier that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Jesus' identity was not confirmed through power and conquest. He did not come as, as many expect their, their, their heroes to come. He, he would never qualify as some Marvel superhero. He, he would not fit well in the General Assembly of the United Nations. Instead, Jesus proved who he was through hard obedience and suffering. And those who follow him must believe in the power of humility and lowliness. They must not selfishly seek power, but rather sacrificially give themselves up for others. This is the, gospel, this is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what Mark has been trying to impress upon our hearts throughout this book. To be a Christian involves humbly admitting that God is in control, that that what he said is true, and that obedience to him is good. And that all of us have, have not come close to doing that right. And God is justifiably appalled at our rejection of him and his ways. He had to put up a curtain and establish a whole system of sacrifices just so people would realize his holy nature and, and have a way to approach him. But, but that system was never satisfactory. It never fully appeased his infinite anger over our sin. It was only through the infinite love of his son and his son's willingness to be forsaken at the cross as he bore our sins that we could be restored to our creator. And the power of that kind of love and sacrifice is unparalleled. Do you believe that? Have you made the confession that truly this man was the Son of God? That is the first step to being made right with God and to escaping the punishment that must be rendered for your sin. We do not know if this centurion had saving faith, but his confession was certainly true. And it shows us that Jesus' death was a revelatory death. It, It showed the world who he is. He is the Son of God who came as a man to die for men. The forsaken Christ, the torn curtain, the centurion's confession. Finally, Mark directs our attention to the unlikely cooperators, the unlikely cooperators. In verse 40, we are introduced to some women who are watching all this from a distance. Three women are mentioned, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. Luke 8 tells us that Mary Magdalene had been delivered from demons by Jesus. And some believe that Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, was also the mother of Jesus. And that's because Mark 6.3 talks of Jesus having two half-brothers named James and Joseph. But 
James and Joseph were, were relatively common names in that day, and John 19, 26 and 27 tell us that the Apostle John may have actually already escorted Jesus' mother away from the cross. And, and this would just be an odd way of referring to Jesus' mother. So this was likely another Mary, perhaps the mother of the lesser-known disciple named James. And finally, Salome was probably the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the more famous James and the Apostle John. Matthew and John seem to make this connection in their Gospels. And in verse 41, Mark tells us that these women were disciples of Jesus throughout his ministry. They were with him in Galilee. They served him. They also followed him with other women to Jerusalem. Why are these women mentioned here? Well, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, they played a, a key role in the burial and resurrection of Jesus. And Mark introduces us to them as eyewitnesses of these critical events. They serve as cooperators of the, of the apostles and the, and the gospel writers. But they were unlikely candidates for such a role. The testimony of woman was not highly regarded in those days, and yet God arranged matters so that they would be in a prominent position to support and confirm the message of the gospel. These women remind us that Jesus came for all and that all people created in his image are valued by him. And these women played an essential role in ministering to Jesus during his life on earth, just like women continue to play an essential role in ministering to the church of Jesus today. All are welcome at the cross as long as they are willing to be there. The final hours of Jesus' life were filled with meaningful events. His death was no ordinary passing. He was terribly forsaken by God because he was alone. And he alone was able to take on the penalty for our sin. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was no audible answer at the cross. But we know the answer, don't we? Why, why did Jesus have to exclaim those words in agony? Why did he have to endure being abandoned by the, by the Father and, and the Spirit with whom he had perfect harmony with for eternity? It was for you. It was for you. It was for all of us. That's the answer to Jesus' cry. And, and so we must praise him. We must say in our hearts, my Lord, my, my, my Savior, thank you for being forsaken for me. That is the proper response to Jesus' cry. We, we have also seen that the curtain was torn in two, and this reminds us that Jesus' death brought a host of benefits. He did not simply bear the punishment for our sin, but he ended the Jewish system of sacrifices and works, and he opened up the way for us to have access to God. Have you been taking advantage of that access? Or have you constructed your own curtain, hiding from God, when the way is actually open to you through Christ? We notice as well that the centurion's confession confirmed who Jesus was. He was truly the Son of God who came as a man to obey and suffer. And finally, the woman at the cross remind us that all are welcome there if they are willing to come. The final hours of Jesus' life remind us to praise God, to go to him in regular prayer, 
and to trust in our humble Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your plan of salvation, which, which culminated in Jesus' being forsaken by you at the cross. And, and we do not know, we, we cannot fathom what, what that meant emotionally for Christ and what it also meant for you and for the Spirit. But we know that, that you did this out of love so that your justice and holiness could be satisfied. Thank you for Jesus' sacrifice. Thank you that there is a way that is now open for us even to pray to you now. And so, Father, help us not to construct our own curtains. Help us to go to you when, whenever we, we, we feel like we have a need. And help us to trust in our Savior who was abandoned and forsaken in order that we might be reconciled to you. We pray these things in his name. Amen.